0: I'm just going to tell you, uh, we got a long way to go and a short time to get there, and I'm not going to get it done. We're really only going to cover about two verses out of this whole book. But what an incredible book the book of Jude is. And so thank you for turning there right now. In just a minute, we'll read uh, part of that passage of Scripture. But we've been in a series called Asking for a Friend. And in that series, each week, we've tried to answer a question... We've tried to answer a question that people earlier in the year have asked to us. And so today the question that we're going to answer is this one. If God is everywhere and his spirit lives in every believer, why do I need to go to church? If God's everywhere and his spirit is in every believer, then why do I need to go to church? And we're going to see some things from the book of Jude today that really give us an answer to that question and 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 really, we're going to focus our, our our thoughts around what it means to be together because I really believe that the mission of the church, it really drives us to come together. There's a great answer to that question. If God is everywhere and if his spirit lives in every believer, why do I need to come to church? I remember my granddad. My granddad was one of those guys that for a long time didn't go to church and then he started going to church. He would show up on Sunday mornings and uh, that would be kind of an occasional thing. He would show up and I'd say, Grandpa, why don't you not the church? He would say, well, if I go to church every week, my cup runneth over. I can't go that often. It's just not that much. And and then my dad was the exact opposite of that if the if the church doors were open we were there he was not a preacher he was not on staff my you know it was just that's just if i was sick so sick that it felt like i was bleeding out my eyeballs we were still getting up and going to church because that's what we did and and then my dad would also he had this interesting phrase he had this interesting idea he would say that meetings Just any meeting you have, think about the business meetings you have or the meetings you've gone to for the PTA or whatever it is that you're a part of. Just think about those meetings. He would say, you know, meetings are an excuse to avoid real work. And so I schedule as many meetings now as I can, so I can avoid all the work as uh, as possible. But here's one of the challenges that I think of when I think about the the answer to that question. If God's everywhere and His Spirit is in every believer, why should I go to church? Here's one of the challenges that we face. And then we'll get into the challenges that Jude faced specifically. One of the challenges that we face is sometimes this mistaken notion that church is really just one more meeting. Right? It's just, you know, a bunch of people getting together to... Talk about common interests and maybe do some common good together. And, and, I, and in that sense, I'm kind of with my dad. Meetings are an excuse to avoid real work. Why do I need one more meeting? in My, my life is filled with meetings. I don't know about you all, but I've got one meeting after another all the time. Misa and I, and I were talking just before the services, and it feels like from November 1st to November 15th, it's one continuous meeting back to back to back to back to back to back. And then we reload on the 16th and do it all again beginning the 17th. It's crazy what our meeting schedule is like, and I just don't need another meeting in my life. I actually need some. Something bigger and better than that. And I actually believe that for the people who would ask this question, if God's everywhere and His Spirit is in every believer, I actually believe that one of the reasons why they even ask the question is that maybe we just don't understand what's really happening in this place. During a time like this. And so I hope we can see that today. And from scripture today, we're going to see what Jude's priority on the church was. And he's also going to show us some three warnings. Actually, they're expressed as three warnings, but they're also ways to kind of evaluate our own heart. And our own lives in relationship to our participation in church and our contribution to church, and really our thoughts about why church even matters at all. So we're going to get a chance to see all of that as we've gone through this series. One of the things we've done with each of the questions is we've attached it to something that uh, that we've seen over and over again uh, in in the Baptist Faith and Message. The Baptist Faith and Message is a statement of it's a statement of faith. It's it's a confession. It's really kind of a summary of some significant doctrines that we have. Southern Baptist people believe and see. And Article 6, this is not all of it, it's just a little bit of it, but Article 6 of the Baptist Faith and Message says, A New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation of believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel. And so, actually, one of the things we're going to see today from the book of Jude, it's just really, really critical that we see this, that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And the church is his plan for sharing that hope with the world. That's what we're going to see today, that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, and the church is his plan for sharing that hope with the world. So turn with me to Jude chapter 1. Actually, it's the only chapter in Jude, right? And we're going to read verses 1 through 4 in Jude, uh, Jude 1. One through four. Here it is. Here's what it says. It says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Okay, I just need to pause right there. I'm just going to comment kind of on some of these things as we go. Jude is writing specifically to believers who are in the church. So if you are a follower of Christ today, Jude... Is writing to you. So to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which once for all which was once for all delivered to the saints, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago who were, were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as an act of worship, we'll frequently say, this is the word of the Lord, to recognize that this is the word of the Lord. So I'll say that, and then you'll say, praise, to, praise be to God. Again, as an act of worship, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much. That's really, really good. Did you notice what happened there in verse three? Jude says, I want to write to you about one thing, but I'm going to write to you about another. And the reason why I'm going to write to you about another is because there's something happening in your church. There's something happening in the church that's dangerous and difficult for the future of our church. There's, there's just something that there. And, and look at it in verse 3. Beloved, I was, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you, watch this, to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the problem that Jude is trying to identify here, and it's something I want us to look out for inside our own congregation. It's something I there is There are people who are desperately today trying to redefine what the gospel is. They're trying to suggest that the gospel isn't about our lostness and our sinfulness and God's goodness through the grace that he gives us through Jesus Christ. They're trying to to transform the gospel into something that's all about my good works rather than God's good work for me. They're trying to take their natural pleasures and their natural desires and substitute them for the grace, mercy, loving kindness, and all of the goodness of God. They're trying to substitute those things. And in this passage, he's saying these men are ungodly men. These are people who come into the church, and with the best of intentions, they look really good. And they're so nice. They're not good, they're not bad, they're just nice, right? They're nice, and they're in our pews, right? They're in our church, they're here, and they're doing things that look right and sound right, and then subtly, over time, and in very subtle ways, ways that are wrapped in good intentions, they're trying to redefine what the gospel is. And so Jude begins in verse 1, or verse 3, He begins by saying, we need to contend for the faith. We need to fight for this faith. We need to make certain that the definition of what the gospel is, is clear. And here's the reason why we need to fight for the faith. Here's why we need to define that really clearly and make certain we know what we mean when we say the gospel, because the gospel is what drives the mission of the church, it's the gospel, it's the worship of Jesus Christ, the worship of our Heavenly Father that makes this meeting different from every other meeting you'll ever attend. It's the idea that believers come together to worship this man to worship this man who stepped out of heaven, stepped onto earth, lived a perfect, spotless, sinless life, and then willingly gave his life as a sacrifice for you and me. Because in our sin, our relationship with God was broken, our relationship with one another was damaged and destroyed, and there was no way of escape for us. We deserved penalty and punishment for our sin. We deserved everything the Bible describes as hell and damnation for our sins. We deserved at all but the gospel the good news is the truth that Jesus Christ died on the died on the cross and he rose from the dead and because of that we can be forgiven you see, the gospel is what drives the mission of the church, and it's important for us to know what that is. Now, before I go on and, and start looking at the warnings that that Jude gives us for, for how we can identify when we might be, what if you are, what if we might be the ones that are trying to redefine the gospel? What if we, what if, what if with the best of intentions, we're sitting here today going, I think I'm doing good things, I'm doing it right, but you know, really the gospel is not that. The gospel is something else. If I'm just good enough, if I'm just smart enough, if I just, give enough to the poor if I just feed enough homeless if I just do all the right things certainly God will love me certainly he'll look at me and go oh aren't you cute certainly that will happen that's not the gospel and there's something I want to point out about Jude that makes this idea that he wants us to fight for the gospel I think it's fascinating I think it's really interesting Jude was one of the half-brothers of Jesus there's two people who wrote books of the Bible who were half-brothers to Jesus. Remember, Jesus, he would have been the oldest. Remember, he was born of the Virgin Mary. He had a stepdad. His stepdad was Joseph. Joseph, after Jesus is born, Joseph and Mary, for a time, they go on to have other children. So Jesus had, had half-brothers and sisters, right? Some of you may have half-brothers half and sisters. Could you imagine growing up with Jesus as your older brother? That's exactly what Jude and James did. They grew up with Jesus. Can you hear the conversations in their house? Jude, why can't you be more like Jesus? His room's always clean. Jude, why can't you be more like Jesus? He, always, he never He never breaks curfew. He's always so polite and always kind. He always obeys his parents. Why can't you be more like Jesus? I'm sure it just drove him and James and the rest of the half-brothers and sisters. I'm sure it just drove them crazy. And actually, Mark chapter 3 It's verse 21. It tells the story of this time when Jesus is telling these stories about how he's going to die again and rise from the dead. Now he's the Messiah. He's telling these stories. And it says that the family of Jesus, his people, came to get him because they thought he was crazy. That's that's actually the passage of scripture, Mark chapter three. It says it in verse 21. His people came to get him because they thought Jude was one of those guys. I gotta go get my brother. He's talking crazy again. He's telling these stories about how he's gonna die on the cross and rise from the dead. That makes no sense. He's crazy. I can't believe he's mine. He's really my half-brother, not my whole brother. We're not really kind of not really related. You know, he's you can kind of feel the embarrassment. Yet now here's Jude looking to you and me, saying, We should contend earnestly. We should fight faithfully for the faith. We should recognize when someone's coming into our midst, attempting to redefine and defile the gospel. He's the one who's pointing to his big brother and saying, he really is the son of God. He really did die on the cross and rise from the dead. And here's what I think happened. It really is the gospel that transformed James's heart. Remember, he wrote the book of James and Jude's heart. Those were the two guys who wrote books who were uh, half-brothers of Jesus. I I just think when your big brother says, uh, hey, I'm going to die on the cross and rise from the dead, I think at first you laugh at him. And you think he's crazy. And then whenever he actually does that you go where he tells you to go (laughs) and you say what he tells you to say that's exactly what Jude is doing right here he's recognized his life has been transformed by this gospel that his life was broken by sin just like yours that his relationship with God his relationships with people have just been destroyed because we would rather do it our way than anyone else's way That rebellion that lives in our heart that says, I know and you don't. I'm big and you're small. I'm smart and you're dumb. I'm young and you're old. I'm old and you're young. You can go backwards and forwards on that, right? For some reason, there's just something built into the heart of man that says, you can't tell me what to do. And for so long, Jude lived like that until his brother did exactly what he said he would do. And then Jude placed his faith in Christ, and now he's looking to you, and he's looking to me, saying, this is a faith worth fighting for, and that gospel message is not something that can be redefined. It's not yours to define, and it's not yours to redefine. It's not yours to defile, because it's my big brother Jesus, and he came back from the dead, and if he's going to say that he can do that and then actually do that he's the guy we should follow so we should be rabid as people of, of faith about defending the gospel about defending our faith and recognizing this is what the gospel is that i was lost and broken in my sin and that jesus christ the son of god lived a perfect sinless spotless life and then willingly gave his life on the cross at calvary not because he had to but because he chose to take the punishment and penalty for your sin and mine. And in choosing to do that, if we trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, we end up being the people who are called by God and who are redeemed by the Son. God, that we're called by God the Father. We're redeemed by God the Son and we're kept by God the Holy Spirit. All three of those things become true for who we are. So this gospel is not for us to define. This gospel is for us to live. This gospel is for us to respond to. And as a church, if Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, which he is, he's taken the church and said, the church is my plan for sharing that hope with the world. How does that message get out? It gets out through you. It gets out through me. It gets out through what we're doing right here, right now, in this moment, to take a look at his word. And and as we go out into this community to, to just be who we are in light of who Christ is and to tell people about the love of Christ, to help them to recognize that they are lost and broken in their sin. But there's a way of escape, and that way of escape is through the gospel. Of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the hope, and we as the church are the delivery system for that hope. So when we show up in this place to worship Him through a song and through a sermon and through a service, there's so much more to worship than that. But when we show up to do that, This isn't like any other meeting that we have. This is a meeting that we get to have together with Almighty God to receive our marching orders and then to go out from this place to share the best story that could ever be told with anyone, anywhere, in any condition, at any time. That's what we're doing when we come to this place. We're worshiping the God of the universe, and we're submitting and surrendering to him. Now, that's an interesting word, that idea of submission. We're submitting to God because the three warnings that we're about to see, the three ways we can evaluate our own heart, the three ways we can take a look inside the life of our own church, they really, all three of these warnings, actually are a reflection of a heart of rebellion versus a heart of submission. They really are a reflection of a heart of rebellion versus a heart of submission. So let's take a look at this. The gospel drives the mission of the church. And we need to contend. We need to fight for the gospel. And I'm going to skip a lot of verses to really focus just on one more verse today. I would highly encourage you to read the entire book. It's only 25 verses. It, if it takes you one second to read one verse, you can read the entire book in 25 seconds. right? So I'd encourage you to take a little more time than that. But let's go to verse 11 for just a minute. Here's the three warnings that Jude gives when he says we should fight for the faith, when he says we should defend the gospel, when he says we should be the people who are on the lookout for those who would, who would defile what the gospel really is. Verse 11 says this, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So those, those are three Old Testament stories that Jude just sort of presumes that his reader knows. They're three Old Testament stories that help us go, okay, what are the things we need to be looking out for in our own heart when it comes to, am I, am I one of those people that with the best of intentions, I'm not really good, I'm not really bad, I'm just nice. Am I one of those people inside the life of the church that's trying to redefine what the gospel is and that's standing in the way as an obstacle to what God does? Am I one of those people... And how can we be a church that that never that never fosters or that never grows a heart like that? Well, he gives us these three woes, and so I'm going to tell us these three stories and show you what the three warnings are. The first one, verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. Now, I don't know if you remember the story of Cain and Abel or not, but Cain and Abel, uh, Cain was the firstborn son of Adam and Eve. So we're talking about really early, all the way back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 4. Abel was the secondborn son of, Cain, or of, of Adam and Eve. They were brothers. Cain was a farmer. Abel was a rancher. He, you know, one, one tilled the land. Cain was the one who tilled the land. And then Abel was the one who, who kept sheep. And there came this moment when they both decided to make a sacrifice for God. Well, that sounds good, right? That sounds noble. We're going to worship God. They both made that decision. Everybody in the room today made that decision, right? I'm going to show up in this space, in this place, at this time, together, wearing my PJs or not, to worship our Heavenly Father. But here's what happened. Cain brought a grain offering, and Abel brought a blood offering. And God accepted Abel's blood offering, sacrifice, his act of worship, but he didn't accept Cain's offering. And, and here's, here's what that tells me. It tells me that the mission of the church moves us to Christ-centered worship. The mission of the church moves us to Christ-centered worship. Why? Well, because with the best of intentions, you can worship God in all the wrong ways. Remember, the Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. That's in the book of Hebrews. And when Cain approached God with his sacrifice, he wasn't approaching God on God's terms, God's way. He was approaching God on his terms, his way. Abel made a blood sacrifice. God found that acceptable. God said, this is is kind of what I'm looking for. And and Cain said, well, this is what I have. I'm just going give you a grain offering. Could Cain have made a, a blood sacrifice? Sure he could have. Did he know that? Absolutely he knew that. He's already seen the example of what God had done for Adam and Eve when he made clothes for them in the, in the garden. God's covering of the very first sin began with the sacrifice of an animal, and I'm certain that Adam and Eve, that that's a story that they told their kids. I'm certain of it. It's why we know the story, right? And so here's Cain saying, God, I want to approach you, but I don't want to approach you your way. I want to approach you my way. And it tells me that when we worship, we can, we can have, again, with the best of intentions, we can do all the wrong things and say, God, I'm not interested in worshiping you your way. I'm interested in worshiping you my way. You see, the mission of the church moves us to Christ-centered worship. Not to worship God our way, but to worship God his way. And here's one of the things about this story that's remarkable. Cain was so envious Of Abel, because Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's sacrifice was not. He was so envious of Abel that he killed Abel over it. God was the one who rejected the sacrifice, but Cain was so envious of Abel that he killed Abel for it. I know, if I could just get this one out of my way, God would accept me, is almost the view that Cain had. That's not how it works. Remember the story, Cain. Hey, I oh, I, I hear Abel's blood. Where is he? Oh, am I my, am I my brother's keeper? That's where that phrase comes from. You know what it tells me? It tells me that the very first murder ever committed was committed over worship style. Cain didn't like the way Abel worshipped, so he killed him for it. I. In my work with the Tulsa Metro Network and some other churches and some other places, I can't tell you the number of spaces and places, the number of people, the number of churches, where there are good people who care for one another, but they're killing one another simply because I don't like the way you worship. Worship is so much bigger than a song or a sermon or a service. Worship is what happens when we recognize we're in the presence of God. And for a believer who's filled with the Spirit, there's so much about style that just doesn't matter. Because it's about the heart we carry into the space. It's about the sacrifice we bring into the room. Are we bringing a sacrifice of praise that's covered in the blood of Jesus? Are we we worshiping the one who, who is worthy of our praise? Or is the focus of our worship really us? I've always thought when it comes to worship that if conditions must be perfect before you can worship, then the object of worship is you. If conditions must be perfect before you can worship, then the object of worship is you. You know, I just couldn't worship today. The room was too hot. I just couldn't worship today. The room was too cold. It was too loud. It was too quiet. They didn't do this kind of song or that kind of song. The preacher was wearing pajamas today. It was so distracting. I can't worship at all in the middle of that. You know, there's some things as pastors and as people we should do to remove the, the, uh, the distractions and the obstacles to worship. We absolutely, as pastors and people, are responsible for doing that. Let's get as many distractions and obstacles out of the way as we can. But for the heart of a growing believer, for someone who is maturing in their faith, the mission of the church drives us to Christ-centered worship, and the end result of that is we recognize that my inability to worship is so much more about what's going on in my own heart than it is about the external circumstances that are all around me. Paul worshipped in a prison. Jesus worshipped on a cross. The twelve disciples worshipped in the middle of a storm. There wasn't a song sung, except in the prison, there wasn't a song sung in any of those moments. There's so much more to worship than singing and preaching and a service like this. And it all begins when you check out your heart and you recognize that the mission of the church drives us to Christ-centered worship. That's the first thing. That's the first warning and the first woe. If you have a hard time worshiping because you're not getting to worship your way, be careful because you might be leaning in to the same challenge that Cain was leaning into. The second woe is, is like it. For they have gone in the way of Cain. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. Now, Balaam's an interesting guy. He's an Old Testament prophet. And, and the king of Moab comes to Balaam. And he says, I'm about to attack the children of Israel. And Balaam, I recognize that you are a prophet of God. And because I see you as a prophet of God, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bless my kingdom. I want you to come out. I want you to publicly bless my kingdom. And I want you to curse the children of Israel. So Balaam, being a prophet of God, goes into his prayer closet. He starts to pray, hey, God, what do you want me to do about this? And God says, don't do it. And then Moab comes back to him. He says, but hey, there's a lot of money in it for you. Hey, there's a lot. You can make a lot off this. And, and so Balaam gets on his donkey. Because he's been offered a lot of money. He gets on his donkey to go to the king of Moab and to his people and to publicly pronounce a blessing on Moab and a cursing on, on the children of Israel. God says, don't do it. And on his donkey, he gets to this pass where there's this little, it's a it, you know kind of a hilly, rocky territory. You can only go through this one pass. And the donkey can see an angel that's blocking the path. And so the donkey refuses to move forward and Balaam just gets mad. He starts beating his donkey, just hitting his donkey over and over and over and over again until the donkey just sits down. And Balaam just gets more and more mad until God, this is such a crazy story, God gives the donkey the ability to talk. And the donkey looks at Balaam and says, will you stop it? Haven't I always taken you where you want to go? Do you not see the angel that's standing right here? Has God not told you don't do this? Sometimes aren't we just like, Balaam, we just get mad because we're not getting our way. We're not submitting to God. God told us clearly not to do it. And then someone else comes along and says, hey, didn't God tell you not to do it? So we just beat them up. And we just beat them up and we just beat them up until God puts in their mouth the same thing, clearly to be heard, that, that you've heard over and over and over again. See, here was the problem that Balaam had. Balaam was trying to buy God's goodwill. Balaam had a money problem. He was willing to sell what others would have thought of as the blessings of God for money. And that's not at all God's intention. God, I've heard friends say for years and years, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the hills too and the mineral rights underneath them. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't. But he does need your faithfulness. And sometimes when we get into a space like this and a meeting like this and we start talking about money, people start getting uptight. Oh, that's all they want is their money. Well, I can assure you the church doesn't need your money, but I can also assure you of this. You need to give. That discipline of generosity, it softens our heart towards the people around us. It allows us to recognize where every blessing we have comes from. It actually honors God's economy. That everything we have and everything we're capable of, God has given to us first. And without... What God has given to us, nothing we do and nothing we have would be possible. And so that idea that we should become people, well, the church, the mission of the church, it it drives us to give generously. That's, That's actually the idea that's here. The mission of the church drives us to give generously. Some of you actually already do that. You're giving generously and you're doing well. You're giving at least 10% of your income. You know, tithing, all that really is is disciplined percentage giving. I would encourage everyone to give something. That's what I would encourage everyone to do. If we want to cultivate a heart of generosity, I would encourage everyone to give something. And then I would encourage everyone who gives uh, to, to, be, to be moving towards 10%. It's disciplined percentage giving. If you can't give 10% of your income, start somewhere and, and just start giving and see what God does in the middle of that. There's something about that seed of giving, of giving away that softens my heart towards God and towards people. It helps me to recognize where my priorities are and helps me to honor Him. Some of us are already giving and I'm concerned that maybe our motive for giving might be off, Giving to buy God's goodwill—that's that's that's not why we give. We're not giving because I've I've heard messages where you know if you give, you know God will take that and He'll multiply it and He'll bless it and suddenly you'll be rich. Well, maybe, but probably not. Um, That's not exactly how it works. I'm not going to give to buy God's goodwill. I'm going to give because I need to give. I need a heart that's soft towards obedience to God. And I don't want money to have me or have my heart. I would rather manage money than let money manage me. And when I give, whatever I give, however much I give, every time I do it, I'm honoring the fact that God has given me something and I can take what he's given and I can use it for his glory and for the benefit of others. And out of that generosity, God is able to magnify that gift in ways that I could never expect. There's a number you're going to start hearing over the next few days. We've been talking as a church about our budget, but this is an example of what I mean. When I say together, when we give, God's able to take what we give and magnify it into something even more. Out of our tithes and offerings, we use about $115,000 to help fund, out of our tithes, the Mission Center in Owasso. It's the thing that helps us give away food, clothing, furniture, and other resources. We, we do about, It's about $115,000 out of our tithes and offerings that we, get to, that we get to give towards the Mission Center. In addition to that $115,000, the Mission Center raises and uses, on an annual basis, about $175,000 more. So about $175,000 more is raised through things like a golf tournament and just people in our community, some that may not even be believers, who just think, I want to feed people, I want to help people. So they're doing that and that's that's beautiful. That's awesome. When you put those two numbers together, that's our church and our community investing nearly $300,000 in feeding people, clothing people, uh, you know, daily essentials, furniture, all those different, the Thanksgiving feed that we'll do, things like that. Uh, th- those are the kinds of things that, that we do through that. But here's what happens. Through the work that Brennan Fulton does as the director of the Mission Center, through the work that Hunter does as, as one of the, the associates there and associate to our missions ministries, God takes that, about $300,000 investment, and on an annual basis, we're actually giving away, according to Brennan, nearly $800,000 worth of food and clothes and daily essentials. I don't know, those of you who are business people who can do the math, that's a pretty good return on investment, I might think. You know, I I might think that might be worth it, right? That's incredible. That's what God does. When you look at your own checkbook and you think, nah, mine's not going to make any difference, I know mine. Mine's not going to make any difference either, right? But somehow, when God takes mine and puts it with yours, it expands to ours. And then he does something miraculous with it that goes well beyond just whether or not a church needs some money. A church doesn't need your money, but you need to give. And if... A message like this, when we get to a warning like this, that first question, will you submit your heart? Like, will you submit your heart and worship to God? The second question, will you submit your finances to God? If talking about this just really bothers you, maybe you're at risk of falling into the sin of Balaam. Maybe you are. And then there's one last warning, one last warning. Verse 11. Woe to them, for they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. They've perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, I'll just confess, it's a little weird talking about the rebellion of Korah immediately after talking about money. Because the rebellion of Korah is really interesting. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Numbers 16. The book of Numbers, uh, chapter 16, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's the fourth book of the Bible. And in three verses, we'll tell you the story of Korah. It's really interesting. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, <clears throat> and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel. 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. So I'm going to stop right there. 250 people led by Korah. These are good people, right? These are good. They're men of renown. Verse 3, they gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? 250 men of renown looked at Moses and essentially said to them, Who are you to tell me what to do? They looked at the children of Israel and they said, God is taken and made all the children of israel holy he's in the midst of all of them and you know what god speaks to me too so moses who are you to tell me what to do that's the last thing we see here is that the mission of the church moves us it moves us to submit to faithful leaders because here's the thing in the life of our church none of us is moses Not one of us is Moses. And it's true that God is in our midst. He's right in the middle of all of us. And he speaks to each one of us through his Holy Spirit. He absolutely does that. And while none of us as leaders are Moses, not one of us, God has actually, in the life of our church, created a leadership structure. We're an elder-led congregational church. It means that there's a group of elders who guide and guard the doctrine and vision of our church. It means that those men are elected and selected by the church. Mesile and I were both elected and selected by the church. Chris was elected and selected by the church. The volunteers who serve as chairman of our core ministry teams, like the personnel team and the finance team and the nominating team and all of those teams, they were men who are qualified to be elders and they're elected and selected by the church. Not one of us serves in any one of those positions because we just decided that's what we wanted to do. We all serve in these positions as one under authority. The reason today that I get to stand in this pulpit and open up God's word isn't because I demanded a position. It's because I was invited and asked by Chris, who represents the guiding and the guarding of our church council, the will of our church council. There come these moments in the life of a church when we're just very tempted to look at the leadership and ask the question, well, you know, God, he's in the heart of every believer. He speaks to me too. And it's just really tempting to look at one another and go, who are you to tell me what to do? I don't know if you've paid any attention to this in Scripture, but there are these moments when the, when the 12 disciples start fussing among themselves about who gets to be in charge, and then one of them, or two of them, or three of them, they'll go to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, who gets to sit at your right hand you know, when you come into your kingdom? Who gets to sit at your right hand? And, and then there's this one moment that I just think is funny. Uh, James and John's mother goes to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, have you seen my boys? They're kind of cute. You should let them rule right by your side. They're awesome. I'm thinking, you sent your mom to talk to Jesus about who gets to be in charge? Good job. Not one of those conversations for the people saying, I should be in charge, ever turned out the way they expected. It's always turned on, their, on its head. Jesus would say, it's not even for me to know the day or hour. God's the one who's talking about when I'm going to come back. And in Mark 10, when, when, when that authority is questioned, Jesus uses himself as an example and he says, for the Son of Man didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The issue that's at hand in all three of these is submission and we've defined that in previous sermons. Submission is when I yield my will to your will so that we will honor God and one another together. And this is what God's call for us is. In these warnings and in these woes, will we submit to worship God his way? Will we submit to let every practical thing about our lives, with, with the numbers of our money being the most Easy thing to see. Will we submit to God with how we give and how we give generously? And then will we submit to God with how we respond to faithful leaders? Will will we do that? There is a place and a place. There is a direction and a vision that God has for this church, in this community. It's the gospel that drives us. And the way we guard that gospel is to guard our own hearts and to guard the mission and the methods of, of the people of this place, of this time, and in this generation. There's one last thing I want to say, and this comes out of my work with some of the churches that I've been, that I've been working with lately, just the ones that are struggling uh, to get by, and the, the ones that are struggling to move forward. They all struggle at some level with these three warnings. And, and it's just the last idea that, that I, I wrote it down because I wanted to say it exactly the way I thought it. The most tragic end of any church is when good people, men of renown, recognize that God is in their midst, but they refuse to submit to the leadership God provides. In this rebellion of good intentions, they divide the body, distract from the mission, and deny the gospel to people that God's entrusted to their care. And just like I said, if you struggle with worship and if you struggle with money, if money gets in the way of your worship, You might be leaning into the sin of Cain or the sin of Balaam. Struggle with your leadership. You might be leaning into the sin of Korah. So I want to invite us to bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. We're going to have an invitation. And in this invitation, there's really just a few things that, that you might want to do in order to respond to God. First off, we've talked about the gospel a lot. If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus... We would love to be able to introduce you to him. and So we'll be around right after the service. I'll be right up front as Jesus comes to sing in just a moment. I'd love to answer your questions and to pray with you. So if you need to place your faith in Christ, come talk to us about it. We'd love to talk to you about it. But if you're a member of the church, if you're a believer and a follower of Christ, and these warnings and these woes have, well, if you've tripped over one of them, I don't know, maybe you're leaning into the sin of Cain or leaning into the sin of Balaam leaning into the sin of Korah, maybe today is really just about repenting. Uh, The altar's open. This is really more of a stage with stairs on it, but it can be an altar. Your chair can be an altar. It can be a place where you turn around and simply confess to God and repent and just say, God, I want to be willing to submit to you in worship. God, I want to be willing to submit my finances to you and trust you for those things. God, I want to submit to the leaders that have been elected and selected in the life of our church to move us forward and to take us to places that you want us to go to share the gospel. Maybe you need to repent, follow him. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the warning of scripture that allows us to understand the answer to the question, why do we need to meet together as a church? Father, we need to meet together as a church because your gospel is that important. We need to be the people in this generation who are carrying the truth that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead so that we can be forgiven. We need to be the people who connect that and carry We need to meet needs. We need to share the gospel. We need to follow you. So help us today, Father, to do that. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.